You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. I think we're ready to begin. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here and it's very exciting tonight to welcome you for a conversation with Rex Murphy and David Blackwood. Of course, to go with our exhibition of David Blackwood's work and I hope you've all seen it. It's on the floor below. It's on till June 12th. uh, 12th. It's called Black Ice and it was um, curated by Kathy Lochnan. I'm going to introduce David first, and the two of them are going to come up and, and have a conversation, and we'll have a chance at the end for Q&A. So David Blackwood was born in 1941 in the outport town of Wesleyville, Newfoundland, to a family with a long seafaring history. Recognized an artistic, as an artistic prodigy, he received a scholarship to the Ontario College of Art, where he studied from 1959 to 1963, and where his interest in printmaking began. By the age of 23, the National Gallery of Canada had purchased one of his etchings. Blackwood went on to become art master at Trinity College School, Port Hope, Ontario, and was then named the first artist-in-residence at the University of Toronto's Arendelle College. In 1992, the Blackwood Gallery was opened in his honour at the Arendelle campus. In 1993, Blackwood was awarded the Order of Canada in recognition of his ongoing and important contributions to the cultural life and heritage of Canada. Now, Rex Murphy, I was keen to do a really good intro for him, and he insists that I introduce him as somebody who was born in Newfoundland and is a journalist working for the CBC. I think many of you know that he's quite a lot. So welcome, if you too would like to come up. Is this working now? One, two, three. Can people hear? Can people hear now? Yeah, well, when the, the AGO set this evening up, and, and eventually, after a very, very long search, uh, came to me. <laughs> uh, usually, usually when I show up anywhere dignified, it, it means that John Crosby is sick. <laughs> I think we can all agree with that. Uh, the reason, for, and I'm not going to speak very long, so that's another mercy that's being tossed out, plus the fact that the election only has five days to go and we'll all survive. Uh, I just want to take, and it will be no more than that, just two minutes, it's outside the regular format. I'm going to have a chat with David uh, for the benefit, we hope, of the whole room, and at about eight, five after eight, if any of the audience want to speak directly by question, to David, there will be a couple of microphones, Jillian will kind of superintend and we'll have 15 or 20 minutes of that. But even before that, and this is not on the AGO's agenda, uh, I'm never going to get the location again, and I, <laughs> I certainly won't get the presence of David Blackwood and an intelligent, appreciative audience to make a statement that can only be said in the presence of David Blackwood and a most appreciative audience. Uh, Shakespeare has said, and others too, that comparisons are odious. 
and I'm not going to compare uh, David or David's work to any other contemporary artist by name, uh, be they from Newfoundland or elsewhere. But what I am permitted to say uh, under a different rubric, and I can say it with utter honesty, is that since the very first time, I have no artistic talent whatsoever. I'm less artistic than musical. And you should hear me sing. <laughs> but from the very first time that I saw a print of David Blackwood's, it came on me like a clap of thunder. There is no other thing that comes out, at least of my province, that speaks of maybe two generations ago with such force and intensity and calling. I'll illustrate it, and then I'll stop by a very small anecdote, but again, insofar as a journalist is capable of being honest, I mean every word of it. <laughs> 30 years ago, I did a 30-minute documentary for the now extinct Take 30 on the work of David Blackwood then. And we put together, as you will do in these things, a montage of his prints. And we were in St. John's. We don't have great resources, so we said we'll get a little bit of music to accompany two and a half minutes of the David Blackwood prints. And the music I chose, and anybody here, a cultivated audience, will, will know it instantly. It was the second movement of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, the Great Funeral March. And I remember, there's a great picture, you remember the captain lying in the dory as being carried off. We ran Beethoven's Eroica, the funeral march, under David Blackwood's pictures. And do you know something? Blackwood's pictures were the only ones of an intensity and strength that could carry Beethoven as an equal. <laughs> So all I'm doing here is, this is 31 years late, is saying I think your stuff is really, really good. <laughs> and I'd also say that, and I mean it, I really do. I think it is of its kind. It is the strongest and most perfect thing uh, that has come out of Newfoundland, and it is a gift of an extremely talented imagination. So that is the, the prelude and uh, uh, the rest of it. Now we will get down to what is not business but merely the most pleasant part of the evening, a little exploration by means of chat uh, of David's own connections to his work, to the place he came from, to where he lives now, and anything that he cares to say, because I know he'll probably ignore the questions anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, the uh, images we're going to see behind us are all from uh, Bonavista North, Wesleyville, the town where I was born, and uh, some of the people, the place, some of the people. The first image here, and they will sort of change every few minutes. The first image is something that was tremendously familiar to me as a child. March, April, you would go to bed at night, the next morning, you would get up, and as far as you could see, 50 to 100 miles out across the bay would be the Labrador ice flows. And of course, the early people settled in that northeastern part of Newfoundland because the seal herds would come down and have their young on this ice flow uh, in March and April. So. I'd like, to, I'd like to know, David came up here, as you heard from Jillian's brief introduction, 
I think if I had the years, the, the years subtracted, when you're about 17, and more or less has lived in Ontario, frequent visits home ever since. What is it about the first 15 or 16 years of your life in this place, Wesleyville? For those of you who don't know the northeast coast of Newfoundland, if you have a picture of desolation in your mind, multiply it by 10. Uh, it is hard, it is remote, but in the 1920s and the 1930s, it was also, if we follow your work, and this is what I'm asking you, it's also the scene, and you'll find this hard to digest, of almost heroic endeavor on the part of what we call the common man, yes. the pursuit of living. Why it has that stayed? Because it has been your entire work, if I may say so. Why has it stayed so powerfully in your mind those first 15 years? Well, you can imagine uh, a small child uh, born in that area and watching on a daily basis the activities involved with the preparations to go to the Labrador. And there's an image here that we will see in a few minutes of the uh, uh, Labrador, the Labrador schooners, and we had 63 of them in Wesleyville. So you can imagine the lifestyle in that community of sailmakers. The schooners were built there, and we will see an image of a schooner, the last big schooner being built in Wesleyville. The schooners were built there, the ironwork, the sails, and so on. So it was a tremendous activity in, in the community surrounding the great Labrador uh, cod fishery. And I guess at one point there were 2,500 mm -hmm. schooners going down to the Labrador, 63 of them from Wesleyville. And the tremendous lore, and it hasn't really been explored yet fully. Uh, we know a great deal about the mythology surrounding sealing, but the Labrador fishery still uh, needs to be explored, and it produced an incredible mythology. People going down and fighting their way through the Arctic ice field, moving down, not with power, but with sails. You, so, you, you know, you've, you've raised the point. I think I was always wary of bringing this up with you in, in the few occasions. I won't overstate our acquaintance, but the few occasions we were together. Your images, they are the images of that time and place, and they are, they are accurate. But you also place something over them. I can't find the words to describe it. You place something over them that lifts them into fields, you said in your own word, of either mythology, in some cases they're, they're ominous. You think of, I think of references, and I'm not being pretentious. Dante. What else is going on in those pictures besides just the great record of something that may be passing away? I think uh, a very strong, uh, a child with a very strong imagination constantly being fed by the storytellers who were going to the Labrador, the great storytellers who were going to the seal fishery. And we can't forget the fact that it was a very powerful Methodist region of Newfoundland. What does Methodist mean now? <laughs> it's hard to say what it means today. Yeah, what did but it mean then? Then it meant education, Reading was a very important uh, thing. Uh, the Old Testament, for whatever reason, was predominant with the Methodists. And so in church and Sunday school, we were involved with Noah and Job and Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of Babylon, Jericho. All those fantastic stories were fed to us, uh, especially in Sunday school. And then that kind of storytelling 
uh, moved over into the everyday community. So it was really quite, ama uh, quite amazing in terms of feeding the imagination. Your education, you were in Wesleyville, uh, you know, this isn't Notre Dame or anything. Wesleyville is a hard-off place and a very sparse town. You mentioned the Bible. There was also a physical Bible that had some pictures in it. What was David Blackwood's education, say, from 10 to 15, that played into his artistic side? Well, we were very fortunate. Again, this is a product of Methodism. We had great teachers who had gone to Memorial College in St. John's. They were fairly well-educated. Uh, in some cases, in one case, uh, uh, one of the really good teachers was a veteran of the Second World War and had visited Rome and had seen the Sistine Chapel, had visited Versailles. All this information was brought back. Another teacher, grade 7, uh, grade 6, grade 7, grade 8, uh, traveled a great deal all over the world. And we could already wait for September to go back to school because she would bring back all this incredible information. And then we had a very unusual thing in Outport, Newfoundland. We had a library, which was the product of the Methodist idea of reading and writing. You, you should probably clarify now, when you're talking about a library, the people here might think of about a thousand books or five hundred. Well, it was about uh, uh, not much bigger than 16 by 20 feet. Yeah. And it had a stove in it, and it had a librarian who went to that building every Wednesday <laughs> afternoon. The Lives of the Saints were yeah. popular. And it had all sorts of stuff in it. There was only one book on the subject of art. And it was a, 19, a 1900. And actually, um, Gary Michael Dalt recently, um, I remember this book so strongly, and he actually put his finger on the author. And it was published in 1900, and it was a biography of the great French painter uh, Jean-Francois Millet. And, and it was a story about this little boy who could draw. And the, the village got together and, and sent him off to Paris to study. He didn't have paper or, or pencils or anything like that. He would take a piece of charcoal out of the uh, fireplace and draw on the stone floor. Uh, and a very, very strong impression on, uh, on someone yeah. who was six or seven or eight years old at the time. That was a very strong impression. But then there was a table in that library, and it had time, life, and Canadian National Geographic. And I actually read an article in the, in the National, Canadian National Geographic about the group of seven and the Ontario College of Art. Oh. And that's how I discovered that there was a place in Toronto where you could actually go and study. How strange was it in your community, if it was strange at all, uh, that someone male uh, in 14 or 15 wasn't about to get on a boat and head off to Labrador and instead was, was drawing pictures? Well, I was uh, expected to follow in the tradition. My father was a sea captain, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. And when I was uh, 14, I was presented with a, a punt. Ah. And, uh, and it was suggested that I, Uncle Ned Windsor was retiring from the lobster fishery and had about 100 lobster traps. So it was suggested that, you know, we acquire the traps and... You should become a fisherman. A classmate, and I got the traps, and they were 10 cents apiece. And every single one needed to be seriously repaired. But we, we became uh, 
we became lobster fishermen at the age of 14. <laughs> and, uh, and which you... also involved having to put out a herring net for bait and freezing cold that time of the year, uh, April, May. Uh, and, uh, and on one occasion, it was really quite interesting because we, put, we were quite proud of ourselves having 50 lobster traps. And they were all carefully placed around the coast. And we went to bed, and the next morning we got up, and the Arctic ice was tight to the land. And when it moved out five days later, it pulled <laughs> all the traps out. So. And we managed with long poles to retrieve about 20 of the 50 traps. And that was a, a severe blow. A view of Wesleyville in the winter. There was a previous slide showing August, and this is the same view in, in, in the winter. So but you can, actually, you can actually see the town, so this is an unusual day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right? The, yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The early missionaries came out in June, July, and thought, oh, what a lovely spot. <laughs> and after one winter, of course, and they were all from the pastoral regions of England, and after one winter on this northeast coast, they would pack up and, and, and disappear. Missionaries are weak-minded yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i got to ask you, so much, and it really is, so much of your work is still Wesleyville, the connection to Labrador, the ships up off to Labrador, the sealing captains, the women that are there, even, even the small shacks, the little door paintings. What is it that has made you so scrupulous over almost 40 years to record so particular a set of, you tell me what they are, memories, images, home. What is it that keeps you so fascinated by where you were? Well, you know, very, very strong feelings for the place. Very um, uh, strong feelings for the people. And I think there was a great American uh, painter uh, who suggested that you only paint the things you love. When I arrived at the Ontario College of Art, I encountered two or three really great teachers who emphasized the importance of a subject. Mm -hmm. Whether you were a writer, whether you were a musician, or a visual, a, a, a painter, it was really important to have a strong subject. Well, I didn't have to look far. And other people were struggling with trying to develop their own personal handwriting and uh, for me it was ready made how did, maybe this is not a question that you can or should answer how did you hit on the peculiar tones of your picture there's the blue occasional flare red a blackwood picture just announces itself how did you hit those particular it's a, tones it's a climatic thing for the region uh, especially and the most the strongest impression would be winter you know, summer was sort of okay. But January, February, March, April, May, June even, winter, very strong. And things were reduced. You know, there was the whiteness of the, basically the white and gray and grayness of the sky and the blackness of the sea yeah. and the whiteness of the land. And... Graphic art is usually very basic and very monochromatic or strong graphic image. So, so the subject matter, the landscape, was really ideal for graphic 
uh, interpretations. Did you take? You didn't have to think about color, you know. And that came later in the watercolor paintings and yeah. oil paintings because what we see in the show on the fourth floor is only really one one third of the total uh, production. Do you see, yeah. and it's, it's quite a, a, a range of prints over the years, do you see all of these, seriously, do you see all of these as one grand story, either located in Newfoundland or in some other space, mythological or otherwise? Is this one huge tale that you've been telling since you mastered the arts that obviously you have mastered? It's one that has to do, perhaps it's the human story, not just Newfoundland. It might be go beyond that. And as you live and as you grow older, you, and you, as you live and experience all the things that a person experiences, mm -hmm. the, it feeds the word. I consider myself a student. And a gentleman came to see me. I like telling this story because a gentleman came to see me just a few years back. And he was interested. He was a printmaker and he had a serious accident and he moved from being a great glass blower to printmaking. Okay. And he was told that he should speak to me because I was some kind of uh, guru in the field of printmaking. Oh, you're a guru. Yep. Well, and Michael, uh, Michael came to see me and he said, I understand that you know all there is to know about printmaking. Mm -hmm. I said, Michael, yep. I'm just a student. <laughs> and he was astounded. And then he said, well, I guess in that case we're, we'll have to f figure it out together. But, so I'm constantly learning and exploring and I'm influenced by what I hear and read and see and, uh, and always open to um, other people's work and um, even children's work will feed me sometimes. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. That, on, so. on that one point, I had another question. There's no formula, really. You know, I'm wide open to... Uh, to but to, on that one point, no. you, you said children, and I've been stressing the ages of 10 to 15 in particular, and I think of, don't mind the comparison, some of the Dickens novels. You, you understand a lot of characterization in Dickens if you understand that the, the, the viewpoint in so many of them, it even if it's disguised, is the small child, girl yes. or boy, is the bulk and sometimes the ominousness and that distant spiritual feeling of your prince, is that the eyes of the child very looking much through? Very so. A very astute observation. The only one I'm going to make tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, tremendous impressions of scale, especially. Um, uh, this, by the way, is the, large, uh, the last large wooden schooner built in Wesleyville, 1961. Where's, how long ago was the photograph taken? 1961. 1961. And a few years later, I w and it in, in influenced, uh, there was a print made it, at the there time. Print, and to date it, the queen had a new baby, Prince Andrew. And the man who built the schooner actually sent a letter to Buckingham Palace to get print? permission to name the schooner uh, the Prince Andrew. And he got a very favorable reply. And... Uh, I was curious about whether or not power had been used to build it. And Skipper Tom Windsor, the master builder, who had built many schooners, said, well, he said, you know, we heard you could do it easier, and we went to St. John's and bought a drill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
He said, we got it back in Wesleyville, and two days later, it broke down. And we said, to hell with it, and proceeded to use the traditional method of the uh, auger to do the borings for the planks. And again, on this small boy, the scale of yes, the it, people it, there. Yes, you know, for, uh, and I had been watching schooners. I, my first impression was of a very large schooner called the Wesleyville, and it was about 1940, 45, so I would have been very, very small. And all of these new ships out of the water looked absolutely gigantic. I mean, they, they became the, uh, the uh, ark. You know, they were absolutely gigantic. Yeah. And you see the people scurrying around them and getting them ready to launch. Uh, and some of those, some of the icebergs that you have in your picture, too, they are icebergs, but, but there's something else besides that. They're absolutely gigantic, and as a small child on the Labrador, um, if there wasn't very much to do, especially on a Sunday, because they were very particular about not fishing and not working on Sunday, on the they, Sabbath. They were religious. Very. And if you went out and you tried to fish on a Sunday, you'd have all sorts of bad luck. So one of the favorite pastimes was to row around, especially if there was an iceberg. You'd, somebody would take you out and row you around this thing, and of course it was absolutely, unbelievably spectacular. <laughs> you know? And they were, the rower would be very careful not to go too close to it. Good idea. Because it could founder or split apart. And, yeah. yeah. Did you, when you came uh, to Toronto... And you started your studies, and you found, obviously, you found what it was you wished to do. Your pictures are all very clear in, in the sense that if you look at them, you don't go away for a year and introspect to figure out what you just saw. It's pretty present what it is that's on the, on the plate. Did you take a lot of grief from people who said, oh, this is not modern. David Blackwood is living, you know, in the days when pictures told a story. What, what kind of backwardness is that? Well, at the Ontario College of Art at the time, it was split into two. The uh, one group following the uh, New York School of Abstract Painting and, and the instructors in that area were very, very good Canadian painters like Jock McDonnell. Uh, it was a pioneer abstractionist in, in Canada. But then you had the other wing, which was sort of Rembrandt and German Expressionism. And, uh, and printmaking was like something completely apart. But we had the advantage of the, uh, the top man, teacher, instructor in printmaking, was a very literate uh, man. Uh, often felt he should have been uh, 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 writing or designing for the stage because he was a great, great interest in, in sort of what was happening mm -hmm. sort of in a theatrical manner. And uh, so he uh, was very encouraging and, uh, you know, and people were, uh, he respected, uh, the idea was that, you know, you, your own handwriting was important. And uh, he did not really interfere with okay. what individuals were doing. Even though I've yeah. had chats with you before, uh, I'm still not totally clear, and maybe I, I would think a lot of people here would be just simply interested in, A, why you chose print as your form rather than other forms of painting or image making, and secondly, if you can do it in two or three minutes, uh, what are the mechanics of building a picture that you have to go through? 
to answer the first part of the question. Of course. Uh, again, at the Ontario College of Art, printmaking uh, was presented as a great democratic art form that more than one person could enjoy the work and that painting was elitist, that when, when the painting was finished, it disappeared, it went into some private domain, whereas printmaking was very de a very democratic art form. You could have one, your friends could have one, and there were great examples, of course, in the history of printmaking. Uh, Daumier, mm -hmm. Goya, Katie Kolwitz was revered at the Ontario College of Art, great German uh, printmaker, and uh, a, a group of other people, uh, you know, the idea that a large number of people could enjoy, afford, and enjoy uh, that was the then. image. <laughs> so, and, uh, and of course, the idea of the multiple, you know, $10, yep. $25 each, Yep. Four prints, $100. I mean, it was really a, a means of survival. I still tell art students today that, you know, it's almost absolutely essential that you do printmaking because... You might want to eat. No kidding. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I'll, what's involved then? Again, to, in, in, to create the work, it's very complicated. It's daunting, and it sort of discourages a lot of people uh, moving from the idea sometimes a very small drawing into a larger drawing. And all the time, of course, you have to think about, you know, how you're going to approach it, how mm -hmm. you're going to do it. As you, as you can see in the uh, exhibition on the third floor, there's a room yep. showing the various stages, and uh, everything has to be done backwards, which is not a problem for Luth Lander. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, mean, can, I, I can, I can say forwards, that yeah. everything has to be done in reverse. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, anyway, it's, and it's very, it was very attractive to me because it's not only drawing, but it's painting, it's carving, uh, there's a craftsmanship involved, yeah. a method of, you know, you can't be silly about it. You can't be throwing things around. It's, 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 a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a discipline and very demanding, and a slow process, which is, gives you time to think about what you're doing. So, um, that, you, That's an interesting yeah. thought that you're having there as well. The idea that the production of art, art is a word that gets applied with great elasticity sometimes. Uh, but here you have a stress on really very specific skills of extremely fine nuance. I mean, the, the, the carving, as you call it, the, the pre-drawing, that's an immense accumulation of absolutely necessary skills before you can even get to talk about image and picture. And it's an ancient art form. It goes back a long, long time. So it's a good feeling to be working in a, tra a great tradition of producing visual images in this manner. And again, it's sort of ideally suited to... Uh, my own personal subject matter. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned the Bible and you mentioned the etchings that were shown in that Bible in Wesleyville. In, in your training here or in the travel since, is there any other imaginative artists or artists, plural, that have really said to you, this, this is, there's something in these people that I admire greatly and I want to get something of what they do into my work? 
Who, who are the ones before you that you admire? Well, Katie Kolvitz, um, who lived and worked in the late 1800s into early uh, pre-war uh, Germany, into the Second World War. Her husband was a surgeon who uh, worked in the uh, German countryside, and her subject matter was his patients. Huh. And uh, of course, uh, um, and she had very strong um, uh, social uh, feelings. And uh, when uh, the Nazis took over in Germany, they literally visited her every day. They were terrified of her political, yeah. socialistic um, ideas. And so a great, great, a very great artist um, and very strong influence. Uh, a lot of the German expressionists, who a lot of them were printmakers, uh, were, are inspirational um, on various uh, mm -hmm. levels. When Rembrandt, of course, who was the great etcher, the great printmaker, uh, really quite amazing. I look at this work and it's hard to to imagine in the 1600s producing some of the work. Uh, did he have magnifying glasses? Did he have good eyeglasses? <laughs> How was it possible? And we know that his etchings, which were done in the back room, because out in the front room there were 10 people doing his paintings, all hand-picked and highly skilled artists. But, and he would visit them once or twice a day and check on what they were doing, but his own, in the back room, he was working on his his etchings, and nobody helped him, and nobody fiddled with those. Mm -hmm. It was, and so we see the great result of that incredible, amazing. I guess there was no television or no newspapers, <laughs> or, and so it was a tremendous focus on, on what he was doing. What a desert it must have been! No TV. <laughs> oh my, horrible. The great sequence that you have established. Again, I'm going to go back to the beginning. All of these prints, but Labrador, Wesleyville, the SEAL captains, the women. Are you telling a, a full story through that? Is there, is there a period when the men are on the ice, it's in jeopardy, we're in the Labrador, and is there another period when they're now they're coming home, you start to see a kite flying, you see a bit more... Is, is, it, a, is it a natural sequence unfolding, or did you determine the story in advance you wanted to tell. It's a natural sequence, but you know, there was no pre uh, okay. preconceived, you know, it all happened, one thing led to another, so there's no really mm -hmm. plan uh, to tell the story. It sort of happened. One thing would inspire another. You'd be working on one idea and it would give you an idea. Well, like this church, uh, the church, the church right here you now. Know, it, you did a magnificent print of that one. Uh, what, was the, what was the episode you're recording in that print? Well, 1941, uh, and in the summer, not in the winter. I've changed it around for whatever artistic reasons or whatever. And because at that particular time, all the men were on the Labrador, only the women. And, 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 and young boys were in the community and elderly uh, people, and they managed to get all of the seats out of, out of the building. Uh, so it was in July that it actually burnt, and a lightning bolt, no, no lightning rod, because they, they were so faithful and so serious, I couldn't imagine that a lightning bolt would strike the church. 
So it wasn't, there were no lightning rods or no preparation for it, and uh, it was quite a blow because the building uh, signified their great success as Labrador fishermen, sealers, and, uh, and it was built on a gigantic scale to, yeah. to prove to everybody that, you know, we've reached it. That's, that's one other thing. Again, you, you said it yourself, it is the scale. Yeah. Uh, even my Toronto centers, that's a skyscraper. <laughs> and and you've got, you also have this mass of people. You often have in your pictures, and this is just personal curiosity, yeah. this great mass that are huddled around. You have it on the Great Lost Party, you drift yes. on the edge of the iceberg. There's something, I, I know that that's what people were there then, but is it also something else? These, these are, they're always white faces, full garments. Well, the entire community, of course, would gather around such an incident. Yeah. And... Um, and in this particular case, the piece you're referring to, the gigantic iceberg with all the people on it, was actually a ghost story from that region. And, and this is more of a reality here, mm -hmm. where everybody uh, runs to, uh, to see the, the uh, disaster taking place. How much did the personalities, that's another great thing, if, if you've been, uh, some of you have, to small fishing communities, same is true, incidentally, of, of small farm communities, there's something about occupations that bring people in contact directly with the elements and contingent on them that builds a certain kind of character. I'm not saying it's better, I'm just saying it is different. But they're very strong personalities, those captains you speak of, and some of the women, I keep seeing these, some of the women in your pictures, so strong and so fierce. Was the personality range in Wesleyville then of, you know, gigantic figures in the terms that I'm talking about? There were quite a few gigantic figures, and they were all given the honorary title of aunt or uncle. Not everyone would be called Uncle John or Uncle George. That's true. But with a person of great integrity, a great honesty, great generosity of spirit, a good man would be... Uncle. Uncle. And the same would apply to a woman. And uh, so certain people took on really incredible stories. And, of course, again, in terms of the uh, storytelling tradition, there would be certain individuals who would be um, outstanding. Uh, we know the issue is contentious, know. so we're not going into that. But I've seen, and I'm sure people who know your work have seen, some of the pictures of the, the great ceiling captains. Now, if there is a pantheon uh, in the David Blackwood yeah. world, are, are, these, are these the gods of the northeast coast, these Indeed. great captains? They were great um, uh, mythological figures. Uh, songs were written about yeah. them uh, quite frequently. Uh, and a lot of them would have been involved in sort of heroic situations in terms of saving people or... Prosecuting Pre the hunt. Pre preventing disasters. Um, um. But there is, there is also in that, uh, it's not a light topic, but there's always an edge of threat. All of those great fishing pictures, the towing of the Nickerson or the great icebergs looming over, the threat of death or the reality of death, or being, remember those early ones of yours, frozen on the ice, you got the mm -hmm. figures, yeah. and you know those stories. Mm -hmm. How much is that, the background of, of death itself, how much is that one of the generating forces in these That in these was images. very much a part. Uh, we were very close to life, death, uh, 
in a small community like Wesleyville, a new baby, every, every child in that community and every adult would go to that house to see that new baby. And we would all go to see Uncle George in his coffin. And you'd go and knock on the door and you would be taken into the parlor and if you were too small, you would be lifted up to look into. Uh, so, and on the way home from school, you would drop in to the carpenter's shop to see the coffin that was being made. And you'd see the progress on this thing and then you'd actually see it in the house with the person in it. So it was not something that was foreign to, mm -hmm. to the community life. And you'd also, on many occasions, visit someone who might be very sick in bed, you know. And, and so it was all very tribal, very much part of... So, and, uh, you know... What do you think now, as you say, you've done all of this? And I mean, you really have. It's anyone who's aware of the range, just a simple number of pictures and images that you have crafted and made over such an extended period. What are these now to do in, in your best wishes for these things? What are they now to do? Are they a great memorial for Newfoundlanders only? Or are they something that you, you really do want, a very large world, to see something here? If that's possible to answer, and I know it's a kind of difficult I think thought. it's open to interpretation. For some individuals, it might represent a very important record social historical record for the problem, for Newfoundland. Um, it um, might represent a kind of record for mm, human behavior or... Mm -hmm. It's also, you know, in your case, it's memorial too because you're a strong family still. Indi individual is a drawing of my mother and... Uh, and was she pleased when you did this? And then... Uh, <laughs> Not, not, not too happy at all. <laughs> and, uh, and there's actually, I believe, uh, perhaps prior to this drawing or after this drawing, uh, there was a drawing of my father, yeah, and that uh, and that created even more uh, or of a storm, perhaps. Well, you know, they were not too happy with with the results. <laughs> Can we see if, there, if the one that's following is it the one with the flowing hair? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. The next one, if we can. I can understand why he'd be a little put out by that. Well, yes. No, there's no way. We'll, we'll get to it. There yes. we are. Yeah. Now, you say your father wasn't pleased with that. No. <laughs> I no. wonder why. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's a. Very I think sort it's great. Of, it's a very re realistic, really, uh, portrait. <laughs> <laughs> must, must have been an election going on. Yeah. I think this is actually at the National Gallery of Canada. It was strange because they had a choice. I thought they would buy the two drawings, one of the mother and one of the father, and they ended up buying the one of the father, which might not be as great a drawing as the... Uh, the drawing of my mother. Seriously so. dramatic, wasn't yeah. it? How did your family, if you don't mind pers slightly personal things, how did your family feel when you, uh, it was obvious that you, you were doing something quite fine and there's some success in this? Well, again, you see, I don't, I don't want to harp on, on, on uh, the idea of the Methodists, but the Methodists were sort of very uh, uh, proud of someone who had a gift, 
So if you could sing, if you could play a musical instrument, if you could write poetry, uh, it was considered wonderful. And this little boy who could draw and paint, they thought it was, you know, people would walk great distances just to see what you had done. They've done so tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, so it was considered, you know, a, a wonderful thing that a child could could do this, and so it was great, very much support. They did, perhaps did not quite understand the whole yeah. thing, but they realized that it was something, something special. And also, this applied to storytelling. And I often referred to my father, I often remember my father saying um, Captain Lou Kane was one of the greatest storytellers on the shore. Yeah. So... That was recognized as a very special uh, gift. Yeah, and the, and the seal hunt and the fishery yeah. was a great nursery for all sorts yeah. of yeah. stories and mythologies and yeah. jokes. It was a very quick... Is, is the time that... Is, is the, one of the reasons, again, I keep going back to some of the same things, is this time and period and the virtues that it produced, because it produced virtues as well as vice, and the virtues of character it produced, is that utterly gone? Um, Every now and again, there are glimmers in the grandchildren. Uh, You know, you remember the grandfather who was a remarkable, outstanding individual. And then the son, uh, something is missing. (laughs) And then the grandchild not only looks like the grandfather, but has his character. And and this is a very wonderful uh, thing to see. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced it many times in Newfoundland where I knew the grandfather and then all of a sudden these remarkable grandchildren who often look like the grandfather and have the same characteristics, you know. So I don't think it's lost. Yeah. There's one other... And there's some remarkable young people. Yes, there are. Yeah. There's a subset of your pictures that I want to mention before we, we go maybe some questions in the audience. And that subset is a series of, of portraits of, of the mummers. Now, maybe, again, maybe most know it, but even if there's a few that don't, explain what the mummers are and why, I can guess some of it, but why mummers in particular and their, their face coverings and stuff, why they figure in your pieces? Again, you know, childhood experience of these sort of nocturnal figures coming to the door and knocking three times. and One of them would shout, you know, are any mummers allowed in? And if you were prepared to accommodate the group because often there might be seven or eight or ten people. It's required drink. And uh, <laughs> so you would be, anyway, they would make such a mess on the, <laughs> on the kitchen floor and they'd come in and then you had this uh, a situation where you tried to guess the identity of the people. They might be ne- next door neighbors but padded out and disguised and, and uh, and it would be very disconcerting because sometimes you'd have a group of people who would walk 10 miles from a nearby community and it was impossible to guess the identity. And it was almost a disaster if they got up and all left and you had no idea who they were. <laughs> now, if you guess the identity of one person and, oh, it's Susan, then you know, well, John must be there too, her husband. So then, you know, one thing would lead to another and uh, it's really quite funny. You were, once you were uh, identified or 
try and guess the name. You were obliged to expose yourself. The veil. They all wore veils, and so exposing yourself meant something like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then of course one you know you would hopefully identify all the other people, and and then there would be food and and uh, drink and drink, and and there might be music. music, music. Uh, there's still a little bit of that going on in its genuine form if you go far enough around the, around the base. It almost disappeared completely, and the film that's shown here on the fourth floor, uh, made by the National Film Board, there were no mummers anywhere to be found. So a group of people volunteered to dress up for the sake of the film, and the following they had so much fun the following year, they decided <laughs> to, to do it again. And it's, it's been continued, it's continued ever since. It's become a, a wonderful activity for the 12 nights of Christmas. And there are all sorts of interesting things involved with mummer. As a mummer, you could dress up and go to someone's house and say, now look here, I'm not too happy with what you said or done or your behavior. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, you, never, you didn't show, show up to help me pull my boat out of the water or you know, and you would, and you could tell, you could tell people, you could really castigate people as a mummer. Yeah. And normally, in a small community, you couldn't really say anything to anybody about anything. Okay. But as a mummer, you were free, free to do it. And uh, the great dread, of course, was to go to the door to hear the the knock on the door and to uh, uh, discover that there was only one mummer. And it was foreboding. A foreboding. It was a premonition of death. And you would never allow that figure into the house. And you would watch him or her mm -hmm. uh, walk away. And it was a, a disaster. As, yeah, one, one of your prints has that particular. A lone mummer inside. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I actually remember. Uh, roughly in 1949-50, Newfoundland became a part of Canada. An incident of this nature occurred in Westleyville, and the new RCMP officer was trying to find this person because <laughs> it was really considered really a bad, bad situation. Yeah. yeah. And, and then there's a romantic aspect to mummering, too, that you could uh, do things... Uh, uh, dressed as a mummer that you normally wouldn't. And, and you they, could pursue a, a, a lady that you had your eye on all year, and you could dress up as a mummer. And you you'd could, dress up as a woman, she'd dress up as a man, <laughs> and then you'd chase each other. And there was cross-dressing. It was really quite, oh, yeah. <laughs> quite a problem. It's a very lonely place, Newfoundland. <laughs> there are some, uh, I, I'm thinking of one in particular, there are some young people here. And you began this. I saw, by the way, and unfortunately, I don't think that's in the slides, or is it? There's a picture of David at the age of 16 or 17, and he looks like James Dean, except that he yeah. has a purpose. Uh, <laughs> that's you just about to come up here to Ontario. If you're talking to some young people, and I mean really young people, 13, 14, 15, 16, who have, it, to use your own word, who have a glimmer of art in their, in, in their own mind, what would you say to them is, is the value of thinking that that's a possibility for them. Well, it's much easier uh, in 2011 because we're all in tune one way or another with visual art. And uh, the 
possibility. Of course, you know, sober-minded parents the world over have always been really wary, no matter how talented the child, very wary about uh, their children pursuing uh, a life in music or, or writing or painting in particular. But today, it's, I think we're more inclined to, mm -hmm. to do it. And I think it is uh, very possible. It takes a great deal of tenacity. Actually, it requires a great deal of courage to decide that uh, um, this is what you're going to, to do. And earlier on today, we encountered a young man who was a waiter in the restaurant, Frank, and he's an opera singer. And uh, can you imagine trying pursuing a career in opera in Canada? And, uh, and he's very... Uh, um, very devoted to the idea, and he's uh, making, yeah. he's, he's managing in order to pursue his great love, which is opera, music. Um, he's doing other things, and this seems to be the case generally. Well, before I go to the audience yeah. for questions, just one more. I mentioned the very, very young, and I've been saying through most of the evening that you've done so many. I mean, when people start to comprehend, it's not all in the exhibit, just how much has been done. How many great images, how many great icons recording something in my mind is just there. What were the gratifications? Other than, you know, you have industry and you kept your family and you know, all those things. What were the gratifications of a career accomplishment that came from art to you over this long, long period? What did you, if you can be that personal, what, what, what came to you as a kind of thanks for pursuing this? Well, being able to survive. Uh, and make a living in Canada um, doing nothing but drawing and painting. A little bit of teaching here and there. Because for a period of time, it was when I graduated from the Ontario College of Art, I was expecting to go back to Newfoundland and perhaps um, teach for a period of time yeah. in order to do my work. And that there were no possibilities. Um, and I was approached to teach one day a week in Port Hope, Ontario. And um, every Friday morning, I would get on the gray coach and go down to Port Hope, walk up to the Trinity College School on the hill, be there for a 9 o'clock class, and stay until 3.30, and then go down, get on the gray coach, and go back to Toronto. Pay my rent in Toronto, $90 a month. And I was prepared. Day. I was prepared to do it forever. Yeah. And uh, but things broke differently, and you yeah. didn't have to. Printmaking, you know, where the multiple. I won't forget that. Four. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll stop now. As I said at the very beginning, uh, I'm sure that any of you here uh, that have any kind of question, um, the more directed my own, and we have a microphone, so we'll go to where the questioner is, uh, and about his work or about himself, and about these copies. Just say when there's one right there, this gentleman. Let, let me bring the microphone. Mike Splain, uh, Toronto. I was particularly intrigued by your recent comment on art in Canada and the opportunities Canada afforded you when you were growing up and developing into your art form. And one of the things I've always been very much struck by was the opportunity that this country does have to offer. 
I came here from the States in 54 as a student, and one of the things I marveled at was the wealth of opportunity that all four of these nations provided, uh, Newfoundland, the Maritimes, Ontario, Quebec, I've always, and the Western provinces. I've always been intrigued by the variation in the lifestyles and the opportunities that were there. And I think these opportunities still are there. I'm, I'm very hopeful that governments will continue to expand and not cut back on supporting the arts and supporting young people who are interested in creating paintings and creating music and creating poetry and creating work such as you've done, David. I mean, this is really impressive. And to me, it's just a wonderful testimony to the enormity of this country and the goodness and the spirit and ingenuity that this country has. And I've always been overwhelmed by that and have always felt a tremendous sense of gratitude that I've had this opportunity to be here. And I want to thank you for your presentation tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm coming with... And uh, wait behind you as well. Uh, Mr. Blackwood, um, I just love your Black Ice book, the catalog, but I also have your Master Printmaker book. And the, one of the stories that interests me is about um, uh, Captain Jess Windsor and the two, uh, the two, which I think may be his sons, but I'm not sure because the story wasn't in the Master Printmaker. Um, it was the Brian and Martin Windsor, the boat the ship itself, and the, the two that are at peace. Are they related to Jess Windsor? You mentioned earlier um, Uncle Ned Windsor. I wondered if you know these people. Are they are memories from when you were a kid? And, and there were so many picture, uh, prints of Windsor that I just was curious about knowing something more about it. The uh, print you refer to, uh, the great piece of Brian and Martin Windsor, two young men uh, who went out hunting seabirds, which were part of the uh, local diet. And uh, March, April, again, on the edge of the Arctic ice flows. And uh, they went out early in the morning. They had done this, of course, many, many, many times. And they were never seen again. And this is something that would happen. Uh, well, uh, in Wesleyville, there was one family with the name of Windsor. My grandmother Blackwood was a Windsor. And uh, so they're really quite extended family and all related. The uh, Captain Jesse Windsor, um, in the exhibition, there's a diptych of him and below, underneath, uh, his horse. And uh, he, one of his favorite pastimes was sort of picking children up at school at the end of the day and, and delivering them around. And he had a great Clydesdale horse and a huge sled, and he enjoyed doing this. And he was a merchant, sea captain, great sealing captain, and uh, he died mysteriously on the Labrador. He was a very tough, uh, very tough on his crew. And we suspect that uh, someone rigged up a little trap uh, for him. And he was strolling, checking out things on the deck. And he tripped on the line and fell into the main 
hold of the ship and died a few days later, 700 miles away on the Labrador. So uh, they would never throw you overboard. They would not bury you on land. So they would put you in a big box and use salt and preserve you until you loaded up your schooner with fish. It might be four or five or six or ten weeks and then finally go back home and have the funeral. Mm. So. Salt. So Captain Jesse Windsor, home from the Labrador, that's the incident being illustrated. Hi. I just had a question. Uh, you know, in, in, in uh, the last few years, there's been quite a, a lot of controversy surrounding the seal industry uh, in Newfoundland. Um, you know, of course, Danny Williams is... Uh, defended uh, many of the, the sealing communities. Uh, just had a question in regards to, um, in, re- in relation to that controversy today, uh, w- specifically with Aboriginal, uh, some of the Aboriginal fisheries or, or uh, seal hunters, uh, how much does that, or if any uh, at all, uh, play into uh, some of those early uh, memories or... Um, the relationship, maybe, I guess, the mythology with the, the Beothuk in, in Newfoundland, if any of this kind of was informed within the work or within the community as well uh, regarding the uh, seal industry? Well, traditionally, of course, sealing was a very, very important part. And I'm thinking now primarily of the Northeast Coast, but actually all of Newfoundland, because at one point there were 85,000 people involved in the seal hunt. And it was the only means of making money, 50 to $90 a year, because uh, Newfoundland was very much involved in the fishery in a barter exchange uh, system. So uh, seal hunting in the springtime of the year was one of the only ways of making real cash. Very dangerous, very difficult uh, uh, working conditions. So that continued from the early very early days into the 1920s and 1930s and things uh, started to, uh, to change and in our own uh, contemporary time of course it was banned or certain implements that were used actually in the ex- exhibition on the fourth floor there's a gaff which was banned because people imagined that it was a, an instrument of great cruelty in, with regards to the seal, but in reality it was a, a, an instrument of safety to catapult, catapult yourself across crevices to pull yourself out. There's an iron hook on the end to uh, pull yourself out of the water. And I think the regulations, federal government regulations, gave you a baseball bat, which was really an even more an instrument of cruelty and with no means of safety. Um, So the uh, sealing thing is uh, very uh, difficult. It does not really enter into the work that you see in the exhibition because it's mainly concerned with the human element. You don't see seals or people killing seals. And and so the uh, regulations have been impose which are um, res- very restrictive and you might argue well it's a good thing because 
Uh, Newfoundlanders don't need to kill seals uh, in the same way we've gone beyond that or, uh, you know, we're too prosperous, but it has seriously interfered with the Inuit native people who have been doing this for thousands of years, and all of a sudden they're, they're, uh, there's a great impediment to their traditional methods of, of, of working. So if the seal fishery is banned, it should not be banned in, in those uh, uh, regions which you know, would affect native people. This gentleman right yeah. there, and there's one behind him. I work in uh, the theater, and uh, I came to know your work through uh, the playwright Michael Cook, who said in his own plays he was recording the end of a way of life in Newfoundland. And in looking at your work, I, I see much of the same thing. I wonder if you would agree with that. Does your work record, is your work recording the end of a way of life? And is that a good thing? Is life changing for the good or for the bad in Newfoundland as you see it? Okay. It certainly does uh, uh, record something that has disappeared perhaps. A way of life developed over a long, long period of time. Um, really quite amazing. Um, a kind of tribalism that developed over a long, long period of time. And it, it really is gone. I'm amazed, actually, in such a short period of time. Because when I grew up, there were people who knew how to rig ships and how to manage them and uh, how to build whole great tradition of building uh, boats uh, which has disappeared and sailmaking and um, uh, the business of rigging horses and sleds and all all the cod traps, knitting uh, 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 fishing nets, uh, all that tremendous skill passed on from father to son you know has, has really disappeared and nobody seems to know in recent years there were two or three or four people that I could go to all in their 80s and they had such a great store of accumulated knowledge and my God, you know, they've disappeared and I no longer have any reference, resource to... You're the resource. Well, it's, it's really yeah, quite, well, alar- it's quite alarming. Uh, but you are. Uh, uh, someone said... Your work is the resource. Yeah. 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 Okay, another person? There was Kathleen, do you have one over there? Okay. Okay. Over here. Uh, David, this way? Yeah. No, um, David, this way. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm a young artist, and I'm wondering, how, did you ever get any criticism, and how did it affect you? Not in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever get I, any I, criticism? Criticism? Oh, every now and again you read stuff, you know, about... Um, negative things, someone who's very contrary or unhappy or, or whatever, and they're expressing some other frustration and, and they take it out on, out on you. Uh, um, I think it's more prevalent in, in, the, in the world of literature where, you know, uh, someone who has been struggling for a long period of time, uh, unable to get published, and, you know, you get... Oh, um, 
someone very successful writer and they seem to be you know so but that also would be the result of you know envy jealousy or whatever uh, so every now and again you get really negative stuff written and uh, and we we do have a collection of hate mail <laughs> from, uh, and uh, and I was really quite disturbed initially in receiving some of these letters and a friend of mine who's a well-known Canadian writer said oh hell so that's nothing come here I'll show you something <laughs> and he has an entire filing cabinet full of hate mail and he said this is only the good stuff <laughs> okay we have one all the bad stuff is thrown out so, yeah. we have one here Rex okay uh, you, uh, as I look at your work, there, it seems to be uh, bleak and sober and despairing, and yet you have a very positive outlook on life. So there seems to be a disconnect there. How, how would you explain that? Well, um, you know, we're dealing with, um, I guess Shakespeare could do comedies and tragedies and so on. Um, and there is another aspect to to the work, and most people are familiar with the etchings that are perhaps the tragedies more so than the comedies. And you would have to look in, in, in the area of the Blackwood watercolor paintings, landscape, still life stuff, or the big paintings to, to find a balance. And if it was the only thing done, it might be a bit of a a problem. But even so, just to pick up on that. Same and the point, great, great Shakespeare, perhaps the great Shakespeare plays are the tragedies. You know, the great Goya paintings. And the history of art seems to, the really great works of art seem to be dealing with uh, tragedy. Francisco Goya, um, in particular. Um, Rembrandt. Funeral march uh, from the Eroica. In, mu in, in music, you know. Yeah, uh, true. So Minor works. And it's very important to have, you know, the other... Okay, is that one here? Okay, Kathleen Oh, has sorry, one. over this way. David, could you please tell us if you had the eyes of the captain of the Flora Nickerson for one year, could you characterize the experience, if you could, through the eyes of the captain of the Flora Nickerson, in terms of how many seamen, the seasons, the fish, when you did, whatever you did as a captain? As the captain of the Labrador schooner, as my father was, yes. uh, the, uh, the entire activity, the winter time, you would... You would in winter, you would prepare after Christmas. There was a period of time when you would uh, have some kind of uh, a holiday there in, uh, around the mummering time, Christmas. And immediately after Christmas, you started uh, preparation of cod traps, and uh, in particular, uh, cod traps, and the smaller boats would be readied. And then you would often face the Arctic ice field moving south, you would hope that it would be a very light spring, that there would be very little 
uh, Arctic ice uh, because you're moving up to the Labrador, and of course the Labrador current is moving south. This great ice field is moving south, and you have to work your way through it uh, to get up to the coast of Labrador. And uh, once you arrive there, you would find usually a traditional berth, position, place where you would set your cod traps, and you would have two of them. And uh, the fish would be brought to the schooner, and it would be prepared on deck and put below, salted, and hopefully it, this would take two or three or four weeks. You might have a much longer period depending on the quantity of the fish in that area. It could be a very quick trip. It could be a very bad uh, uh, visit to the Labrador. The fish was brought back to Wesleyville. The crew, five to seven people. That entire schooner load of fish would be divided amongst the five people. Men, women, and children would be involved. And you would take a certain part of the, the catch and sun dry it, put out in the morning, brought in in the afternoon. And uh, when it was completely cured, it would be collected and brought to one point and t loaded up and taken to St. John's. So that was the uh, year after year uh, situation. And you gave all that up for painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started, out, I, uh, I started out going to the Labrador with my father when I was five. And my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother at the time, they were all hysterical because they couldn't imagine five men with a little uh, five-year-old boy running around. Who was going to look after him and who was going to keep an eye on him and he was going to be washed overboard or he was going to disappear. And, of course, the women were brushed aside, said, oh, don't be silly, don't be foolish. And I went to Labrador. And the following summer, again. And so then you look forward to it. And it was a great, great experience. Yes, it would have been. Yeah. Down here? Um, we're a small group of printmaking students from OCAD, and we're curious to know about your process and how long it would take you to prepare a, a plate for print and how long it might take you to ink up a print. And um, the first do you give part lessons? Of, the first part of the question about... Um, I was just expressing that we're a small group of uh, students from OCAD printmaking. Small group of students from yes. up back here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I didn't get the question. All right. You were asking about how long it took to prepare the plate. Sorry. Yeah. We're interested in the process that it and how long it takes you to prepare the plate for print. How long it might take you to ink up the plate, and um, the anything else you can yeah. teach us about that. Okay. Thanks. Uh, I usually have two or three or four pr plates going at the same time. So if you feel inclined to work on one, one day you might do it. You might be inclined to work on a smaller plate. And uh, it would take probably two to three months before the plates were finished. And the uh, printing of the plate, usually about... Uh, 
15 to 20 minutes. And there's usually someone helping me with the uh, paper, soaking of the paper, the blotting of the paper, uh, preparing the press. And my job is to ink the plate and to wipe it, which is really critical operation. I don't believe anybody else would be able to print your plates. You know, it's quite common. You could make the plate and give it to a master printer, and he would run off X number of copies. But I feel the inking of the plate and the wiping of the plate, the final quality of the impression depends on your own personal engagement in that activity. I think we have time for two more questions. There's one over there, okay. and we have one here. You, uh, each, when I saw your prints, they seem to tell a story, and you've twice mentioned storytellers. Do you think that we're doing our children a disservice by focusing on technology rather than the, the simple arts of storytelling? Storytelling was very unfashionable a few years ago. And if you were involved in any kind of narrative or storytelling in your work, it was usually referred to as illustration. Oh, he's not really an artist, he's an illustrator, or, and you know, the, his method. And of course, it's very strange because for a long period of time, uh, I honestly believe that the only uh, great art form that was communicating was film. All the great films from earlier times, even into recent times, all these great films uh, were telling stories. And so painting, perhaps, lost itself uh, in a very sort of inward-looking, esoteric abstraction. And, um, and today we have a situation where contemporary art, just a short time ago, uh, contemporary art meant abstract painting and sculpture. And if you were doing realism, you were not a contemporary artist. And now, all of a sudden, contemporary art means abstraction, realism, performance, film, everything. If it's done now, it's contemporary, no matter what the style. One more? One Did more. I answer your question properly? Somebody might tell, say no. Children, what was the aspect of the question related to? Whether, whether technology, the systems we have today are distancing people from, I'll use the term, more simple storytelling. Um, Especially children, are they being shortchanged? Uh, could, it could be, really. I think the verbal, oral, story thing is important, but it's become much easier in terms of yeah. okay. modern technology. Okay. Could be very good, could be bad. The last one here? Yeah. Okay. Um, as a newer Canadian, I'd like to thank you so much for your contribution to Canadian art. I feel that um, having gone through this exhibit that um, newer Canadians will benefit from observing your works and learning about the history of Canada and Newfoundland in particular. And that it's so, um, it's, 
it's made me want to go to Newfoundland even more, and I hope that I'll be able to go soon. And as a small uh, tribute to some of the work that um, you've done, and I've been taking a class at the AGO, I was wondering if you could autograph a sketch of mine of your cape <laughs> spear. <laughs> Draw. Okay. Want to remember what? Yeah. I'm tied down. <laughs> well, I'll uh, just want to say one thing before I turn it over to yeah. Jillian here again. Uh, I want to say just again to David, face-to-face uh, -face and eye-to-eye, -eye, uh, your stuff is the best stuff, and I really mean that. And I also want to say it is extremely gratifying. This is purely vicarious for me, but it must be seriously gratifying for this gentleman here whose whole life uh, has been both inspirational, dedicational, and industrious that so many people come on such short notice when you're handicapped by my presence just to say how much they like you. Thank you, David. I want to thank both of you very much indeed. When I called Rex, and by the way, he was my first choice of person to call. <laughs> he very quickly said yes, and what he said was, David Blackwood is the best thing Canada ever produced, if I'm quoting you correctly. So. Um, but I'd, I'd like to thank you for your contributions also to Canadian culture. <laughs> I'm, I'm also an immigrant, and I, I had some, some of the same thoughts as you did. I started off actually in rural Saskatchewan, so I recognized some of the, ca the characters and some of the business about surviving in a harsh climate and so on. But, uh, so that was a wonderful Canadian evening from both of you, so thank you very much. Okay. I'd like to quickly tell you about, of course, our upcoming talks. So the next series of talks are from a different culture, a different time, our next exhibition is Abstract Expressionism from the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So we have on May 18th, we have Luke Sant, who teaches at Bard College, and he's going to be talking about Robert Frank, who's a photographer we have in the Abstract Expressionism exhibition. We will also have Glenn Lowry, who's director of MoMA, in conversation with Matthew Teitelbaum. So I hope they do as well as you two have done. They <laughs> And of course, MoMA was so instrumental in the creation of this, it, this movement and making it happen, so that will be interesting. And then on June, did I say it was June 15th? And then June 29th, we have Norman Clayblatt, who is the chief curator of the Jewish Museum in New York. So he'll have interesting things to say to you. Will you please come back sometime? Oh, every both? day, every day, every day. Okay. By the way, this talk will be podcast from our website, so that's one of the reasons we like to capture the questions, but it's certainly one I will have to listen to again. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.